Thanks so much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Professor Jackie Leach Scully about disability in the time of pandemic. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Uh, first of all, could you give us a little bit of information about yourself? Sure. Uh, well, I'm an unusual person, I suppose, to be talking about philosophy because um, I'm not a philosopher professionally. My background is in um, life sciences. I, I studied biochemistry at university uh, and then my PhD was actually in um, the molecular biology of, uh, of breast cancer. Um, and after I completed my PhD, um, I moved from the UK to Switzerland and was working and active as a research scientist for a number of years. And then gradually I got less interested, you might say, in the actual science of science and got more interested in things like the regulation of science, uh, what you called regulatory affairs uh, and, and science policy as well. And so gradually, in that way, I moved towards an interest in governance and then in ethics as the background to, to governance uh, and kind of came out the other end um, with an interest in bioethics in particular. And then I was lucky enough to join forces with a Swiss philosopher called um, Christoph Rehmann Sutter, uh, who was at Basel University in Switzerland. And together we rejoined forces and we set up an interdisciplinary bioethics unit at the University of Basel. So along the way, I did a bit of training in philosophy. I hung out with philosophers. I hung out with lawyers and social scientists and so on. So at the end of the day, what I do now is very hybrid. It's quite a lot of social science. It's a little bit of ethics. It's a bit of um, philosophy. Um, and I draw on, I suppose, uh, an eclectic set of tools just to answer the questions that I'm interested in. So would you have a definition of this disability? Well, that's a very difficult one, I think, um, because people will tend to feel you know, that they, they know what disabled is when they see it or when they see somebody or know somebody who they um, feel is, is disabled or who identifies as being disabled. Um, I think I would probably say that it's something to do with having a body which is uh, not within the, the normal parameters, if you want to put it like that. And so because of that, it the, that body interacts differently with environment, with society. Um, and the end result is a body, a person um, who perhaps doesn't function quite as well in that context. Now, I, I think that that contribution of if you want to think of it as the biological bit, which is the body that's not uh, quite the same form or function as other kinds of body. Uh, and there's a, a social and environmental bit, which is how people respond to that body and how societies respond to it and so on. There are some impairments and disabilities which are way over on the side of um, the biological, that most of the problem is to do with 
a body which simply doesn't function in, in the way that most other human bodies do. And then there are other impairments and disabilities where most of the problem is about how we respond to people with variant or non-standard bodies. So it's very, very complicated. And I, I think to talk about disability as an umbrella term is quite useful um, conceptually sometimes and legally and so on. But it actually covers such a huge range of different kinds of experiences that uh, on a day-to-day on -day level, maybe it's not quite as useful as we tend to think it is. What was it that inspired your interest in disability in time of pandemic? I got interested in, in thinking about the experiences of people with disability in, uh, in, in the time of COVID. Uh, in the time of pandemic. Obviously, earlier this year, pretty much everybody was thinking very hard about COVID. We were uh, suddenly plunged into this very unusual set of circumstances, uh, which most of us haven't experienced uh, in our lives before. And I found that I had a, a kind of two-part vision. Um, one was, as a professional bioethicist and as a bioethicist who's interested in disability issues, I was um, noticing some of the um, potential discrimination that there was against people with disability in different contexts, but particularly the medical context um, because of the pandemic. And we can come back and talk a bit more about that later on, uh, in, if you like. Um, but also as a person with a disability myself, um, subjectively, I was concerned about how my life was going to go in these new circumstances. So um, I have a hearing impairment, I'm deaf, uh, I use a hearing aid. So it's important to me to have batteries that uh, power the hearing aid. And at the beginning of the pandemic, I think when none of us knew how it was really going to be going and whether it was going to be a little blip, or on the other hand, were we facing, you know, zombie apocalypse, something like that. Um, if it was, was zombie apocalypse, then I was going to have difficulty getting hold of batteries, which might seem a very trivial thing, but for me would have a major impact on my life. Um, I also have a medical condition, which means that I have to take medication every day. And I was quite seriously concerned about the supply chains and the availability of that medication, like a lot of people with chronic illnesses. And so for both professional reasons and personal reasons, I was thinking about the way in which all the attention was really focused on, let's say, the majority of people, the non-disabled people, and how they were going to survive the pandemic, and much less attention at that point at least was being paid towards people with disability. It's 2020 at the moment, and healthcare professionals worldwide are having to decide which patients receive life-saving critical care. So just what type of guidance is being given and who is it being given by? When you're talking about a situation like that, which is um, the scarcity of critical care, so 
who gets access to, let's say, intensive care units, who gets access to ventilators, perhaps in the future, who gets access to, to vaccines or effective medication against, uh, against COVID. Um, again, at least initially, there was a, a lot of um, talk and some production of triage guidelines or critical care guidelines adapted for the pandemic. Now, triage guidelines are, are, are there all the time. Um, mostly, we hope never have to never have to use them because they're really only there for situations where you have too many people who need the life-saving ventilator or the life-saving medication. And hopefully, we never ever get into that situation. But it, in certain countries uh, in the COVID pandemic, in some countries in Europe, certainly in the United States, um, we did get to that situation in which clinicians were having to decide between a number of people who could benefit from critical care, but there wasn't enough to go around and they had to choose who, who gets it. And the concerning thing from the point of view of disability was that some of the guidelines, not all by any means, but some of the guidelines um, seemed to be uh, written from a perspective that assumed that people with disability had less chance of surviving COVID. So it was assumed that disability was actually the same as a, as a, as a health condition. Um, it, it is clear that people with some kinds of additional health conditions are less likely to survive a COVID infection. Um, and that can be true of some people with disability, but it shouldn't be assumed that that's the case because many people with disability are perfectly healthy. And it looked as if a lot of the guidelines that were being produced um, either took it for granted that people with disability were less healthy and therefore were, were going to die anyway, effectively. So why waste? Um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, okay, but you know, why waste? Um, valuable resources on them. But also sometimes there was an underlying sense, even if it wasn't said aloud, that people with disability were less valuable to society. And so their loss and their death would be um, less of an issue. And obviously that raised a lot of um, red flags for ethicists. And so I got involved in, in writing and a little bit of campaigning around that to try to ensure that the triage guidelines, uh, which in Australia at least we haven't yet, and Touchwood never will have to really draw on heavily, but that the guidelines that were there made it absolutely clear that um, people with disability were to be treated um, the same as people without disability. you um just to repeat a quote that you've written which is bioethics has a dismaying track record of oversimplifying the diversity hidden in disability to the point of uselessness could you explain about that for us yes there has been a lot of bioethics writing that's related to disability and one of the reasons for that is that um, a lot of bioethics is about biomedicine and biomedicine is largely about preventing or treating um, disability or, or chronic illness and, and acute illness as well of course so 
there's a, a substantial amount of bioethics is actually talking about disability. But what it has tended not to do, I think largely because most bioethicists are not themselves disabled, um, it has tended to work with just this concept, it's a very broad concept of disability and the, the writing and the analyses and the guidelines and so on have talked about disability as if it were you know, one thing. And as I've mentioned earlier, the, the diversity that there is within disability is so vast, um, even biologically. And then when you add to that the diversity of different societies and different healthcare systems and social supports and so on. So the experience of disability uh, is even more diverse across different countries and different societies. It can make almost no sense sometimes to try to make a general statement about uh, what people should or should not do ethically uh, about disability or towards people with disability. So I've always classed myself as an empirical bioethicist, so I've tried to draw on empirical data and information and um, personal accounts and so on, but just a knowledge of what it's like to live uh, a disabled life or life as a disabled person with different kinds of impairments and disability, so that you have some idea of the realities of the disadvantages or the amount of suffering or not that there might be associated with that disability, and not that you're working from some kind of abstract idea. Because I think if you are a person who hasn't had a lot of personal encounter with disability, maybe yourself or your family or your friends or something like that, then disability can be very nightmarish. Um, it can appear horrific. And if you're an ethicist writing with that in mind, then your, uh, your conclusions about disability are going to be very different, perhaps, to a bioethicist who maybe has grown up with uh, a disabled sibling or something like that and who can see it as being you know problematic perhaps but not nightmarish or horrific so that's what I meant about um, being you know sometimes the analyses in bioethics being almost useless because they're so broad and general and not grounded in disabled reality yes that's a really good point just to go back to the last question about the um, health professionals, who do you think should be giving the um, guidance? Well, it should have, I think, input from the people who are primarily affected by it, which is going to be sick and disabled people. Now, they are not healthcare professionals so they will lack usually of course some some healthcare professionals are disabled or chronically ill themselves um, but on the whole uh, they will lack the um, the medical knowledge and sometimes the policy knowledge as well which enables people to um, you know to draw up those guidelines so they do need to be drawn up by the professionals who will have an idea of what is possible and what's not possible, what's clinically feasible, uh, what the resources are like and so on. But their judgments need to be grounded in reality and they need to be grounded in a very clear sense of uh, what it really means to be, say, a person with an intellectual disability who may not um, be able to live an independent life as we understand it, uh, 
but it's still perfectly, perhaps, perfectly healthy, perfectly happy, um, living a, a satisfactory life by their own standards. Yes, yeah, that's definitely right. Um, I, I found also that there's been a lot of discrimination against people, uh, older people, and a lot of people mm -hmm. have that attitude as well. Well, they're going to die anyway. What, what does it matter if it's only a few years earlier? Yes, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a very common attitude. Um, and a lot depends on whether what on what do you think the aim of treating people uh in in general and in a pandemic situation you know is um is it uh, a focus on the individual getting them back to health um or is it with a view to the whole of society and an individual's value to society I think there is some context in which it's it's important to do that, you know, to take a look at, at the balance across the whole of a society. But it's very hard to um, make those sorts of judgments on the basis of, I don't know, productivity, perhaps economic productivity, or how many years of life somebody has got left. Um, when I say it's difficult to do that, I mean, I think in in concrete terms it's easy to do it because you can just count up the numbers but whether those are the right criteria to be using uh is you know is is another question and these are issues that ethicists have struggled with not just in the context of covid but uh in other rationing situations and in other pandemics uh, as well you explain about disabilist assumptions? Um, within disability studies there are two concepts of disabilism and um, ableism and they're quite closely related uh, but disabilism is focusing more on the um, discriminatory attitudes about people with disability, whereas ableism focuses more on our, um, our preference, if you like, for a particular kind of body that we consider to be able-bodied. Um, disableism, um, if you're using that, that lens, is looking more at the discriminatory assumptions about people with, uh, with disabled bodies. So the disabled assumptions are the kind of thing that I mentioned earlier, the assumption that people with disability will necessarily uh, have worse health. Uh, some people with disability will have poor health, but some will have just the same health as anybody else, as anybody without a disability. Or the assumption that um, somebody who is disabled has to have a, a worse quality of life than somebody who isn't disabled and we know from a lot of uh, empirical concrete work that that's not the case that the majority of people with disability feel that they themselves have as good a quality of life as somebody without disability um, another disabled assumption would be that people with disability contribute less to society it's those sorts of things that i think are assumptions about um, the the value if you like of people with disability 
uh, and they are discriminatory assumptions as well that uh, discriminate unjustly against disabled people. What are discriminatory norms? The discriminatory norms are um, those things that we take as being standard, normal, ordinary, you know, just the way things are and also the way that things should be. So they're, they're, they're norms that are also normative. Um, and they can discriminate against people who have the kind of body that I talked about as being non-standard. So whether it's um, a disabled body, um, a, uh, a fat body, or a very thin body, um, or sometimes in its um, uh, gendered discrimination as well. So it could be um, those circumstances in which, you know, the furniture and the height and the, the seats in the car and so on are all built for um, a, a man of around five foot ten or something like that where, and, and not for uh, a woman and as soon as you're in those circumstances you're aware that you have a non-standard body so that's a discriminatory norm and uh, women bump up against it quite frequently but people with disability bump up against it perhaps more frequently and with much more um, harmful effects. So whether it's, you know, being able to get into a building because the building is inaccessible to somebody who's a wheelchair user, uh, whether it's having the light switches in the door handles in a, at a height that that can't be reached. Um, if you're below standard height, those sorts of things are discriminatory norms. And the thing about them is that we, we tend not to notice them if we don't bump up against them, as I've said, if they're not problematic for us, we don't, we don't see them as being in any way discriminatory. But um, we can change them. You know, once we notice that uh, perhaps the light switches are all too high for some people, then we can put them lower down because tall people can still reach them if they're a little bit lower down and so on. It's that's a, a, almost a trivial example, but once you notice that these discriminatory norms are applying, I think you have a, a moral and ethical responsibility to respond to that and try to put the situation right and remove that discrimination. Well, even myself being a bit of a short person, I find constantly in supermarkets that I, I want something right up on the top shelf and I can't reach it. So I'm always sort of looking up and down the aisle to see if I can see a tall person and, you know, sort of give them mm -hmm. a wave and say, oh, would you, do you mind getting this for me? And, you know, I mean, that, that's yeah. just a small thing, but it, it's something I noticed myself just because I'm not very tall. And, you know, it, it's, it's having that reliance on other people as well. Mm. It's like I, I can't even really do my shopping and it always seems to be something that I want is pushed right to the back of the shelf and I just can't reach it. Mm -hmm. So um, what are some of the recommendations to rectify this situation? The recommendations that I've been working towards in the, uh, the COVID triage context 
um, was, I think they're, they're pretty straightforward actually. They're, they're worth articulating because as I said, um, we take the discriminatory norms for granted until somebody points out that they are discriminatory. So I think uh, one recommendation would be, as you suggested earlier in your question about who should be involved in making these decisions and drawing up these guidelines, well, some of the people affected should be introduced um, into that discussion uh, early on as well. So that there should be greater clarity uh, about um, to what extent health issues do um, affect people with disability. Certainly, it should always be made very clear that the lives of people with disability are valued as much as anybody else's life. Um, and I think the guidelines that are produced should state very clearly uh, at the outset that um, people with disability should be treated equally as, and as of equal value with pe as people without disability. Yes, I definitely agree. So is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already covered? Um, Obviously, there are other areas that have been of social and of ethical concern in the context of the pandemic. Um, we've all been aware of the way that uh, throughout the world, really, um, congregate situations or group settings, whether it's you know, boarding schools or prisons and so on, have been much more affected by COVID. The infections have gone around those settings much faster. People have tended to get sicker and the death rate has been higher. That's certainly the case for aged care um, in, um, in the UK, the US and Australia. Uh, and similarly for group settings where people with disability live. It's also the case that those uh, people with disability who um, rely on professional support services, so people maybe not from within the family but paid support uh, who come into the home from outside, have found it obviously impossible to isolate and protect themselves. Uh, and that's, I think, is a, a real issue. Um, a lot of people with disability in that situation have been very anxious and you know, have wanted to keep themselves as protected as possible because of their vulnerability, what they see as their vulnerability, but have not been able to because they have to have people coming into their home, sometimes many people and sometimes people who, who either don't have or don't know how to use um, protective equipment, personal protective equipment and so on. So there's a number of other issues that um, I think will come to light, are coming to light, but will continue to come to light over the next months and years as we begin to see how uh, people, older people, but also people with disability have been discriminated against and disproportionately affected by the pandemic. Yes, but do you have any future study plans within this field? Sorry, could you say that again? I didn't catch it. Any future study plans within this field? Um, I do uh, a lot of research uh, around the, the, the basic ethical issues of different technologies and how they affect people, uh, people with disability. So um, I'm 
in context of, of COVID, I'm continuing to look at how disabled people have been affected there. Um, I'm also looking at some of the, uh, in, in a non-disabled context, looking at some of the ways in which um, simply things that we've all been used to doing in a very familiar way, uh, like working from an office rather than working from home, um, have had to change because of uh, the, the COVID pandemic uh, measures. Even things as simple as, as going shopping where people now maybe have to think about, do I have hand sanitizer? Do I have a mask um, and so on? Um, and they've changed people's behavior. And so they've, they've also changed some of the important relationships um, that people have in their lives and uh, our ethical responsibilities to each other. You know, to maybe to disadvantage ourselves by wearing an uncomfortable mask uh, for the benefit of other people, so that they, uh, other people in our communities, um, don't suffer. In a in a very different area, I've had a long running interest in uh, genomics and genetic science and the ethics there, and there's a lot of technical advances being made at the moment in genetic and genomic science about the ways in which we can study and manipulate the, the human genome. And there are a lot of ethical issues raised there about how we use those skills in the context of disability and to what extent people should be using those technologies to um, prevent disability and what happens to those communities of disabled people who feel that their identity is strongly connected to their disability and so uh, they they would challenge the right of other people to prevent them being born and some very um, difficult conversations that need to be held there uh, and i think that's some, that's an area that i'll be working on a lot more in the future that, that sounds great. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. That's my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. And I've been speaking with Professor Jackie Leake Scully about disability in the time of pandemic. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I've certainly enjoyed your company and do stay tuned for Swing and Swap.